Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's open them together to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're going to look at just five verses of Scripture this morning. Acts 12 verses 1 through 5. As we have watched the New Testament church... Uh, we have seen exponential growth for the New Testament church. We saw uh, the, the evangelism of the New Testament church, and as a result of that, so many people coming to know Christ. Then we saw them investing in one another, particularly uh, Barnabas and Saul, teaching them. And then we also saw and recognized last week as they were ministering to those that were in need. In particular, it was the church in Jerusalem they were collecting an offering for and sending it to them. The church church in Acts chapter 11 is seen as flourishing and completing the task that Jesus had given them in Acts chapter 1. You'll be reminded of that, right? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in the uttermost Samaria and uttermost parts of the world. They are seeing that that, that mission is being accomplished. In Acts chapter 11, the church is at a high point in its growth. In Acts chapter 12, as we'll see this morning, as often happens to us when we feel as if all is going well, everything is going as it should, in this moment in the church's life, they experience a difficulty. And in Acts chapter 12, we read about that difficulty that they are going to experience. But I want to be sure that we understand that the difficulty that the New Testament church is going to experience in Acts chapter 12 is not going to stop the mission of the church. Here we are some 2,000 years later and the mission of the church remains because in the midst of difficulty, even it be persecution, but in troubles and, and difficult times, the church is not stopped, but the church is even propelled forward even faster. And we see that in Acts chapter 12. Now I want to remind you of one of my favorite books written by C.S. Lewis. It's really the only C.S. Lewis that I enjoy. It's a book by the name of the Screwtape Letters. And in this fictional story, uh, the, the Screwtape Letters is one demon writing letters to another demon. It is Screwtape writing a letter to Wormwood. And, and the, this fictional story tells us what this, what this main demon might tell the underling demons if he were going to try to get the church away from their God. And Screwtape tells Wormwood in one of the first letters, he said, if you want to make trouble in the church, don't persecute them. If you want to make trouble in the church... Don't disrupt them, but if you want to make trouble in the church, let their hearts grow bored. Let them grow complacent. Let them grow with the ease of life. You see, in that fictional account, what is true that we know to be true, it is in the difficulties of our lives that we grow closer to our Lord. And it is in the difficulties in Acts that the church will grow faster and the church will move forward even faster than it would have in the midst of complacency. This is why we look around our world and we recognize it is not the American church that is growing fast. It is the church, it is churches in areas where persecution runs rampant where the church of Jesus Christ is growing. Iran, Iraq, and China, those countries are seeing the church grow because what C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters and what we experience in the testimony of the church of Acts is that in the midst of difficulties, it is there that the church grows the fastest. And in our lives, we can testify 
It's to times in our lives where we have been in the midst of the most trouble, where we have had the most hardships. It's there that we grow more than any other place. So as we read Acts chapter 12 together in these first five verses, they're going to be a discouraging read today. But I don't want you to think that this is going to be the end of the church because it is certainly not. Acts 12, beginning in verse 1, says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's pray together. God, we ask this morning... As we look at this passage of Scripture together, Lord, that you would help us to imitate in our own lives, Lord, this example that we see by the New Testament church, that when troubles come, when disheartening moments occur in our life as a church or even in our lives as individuals, God, that we would use this New Testament church as an example, that we would, we would desire, Lord, not to pick up the sword, but that, God, we would desire to, to speak to you to depend upon your power, to allow you to wield your sword, Lord, toward men, toward troubles, toward difficulties that arrive in our lives. God, we, we are grateful, Lord, for the New Testament church. We're grateful, God, for the example that they've lived before us. But God, let us as individuals, Lord, desire to live in their shadow as they, as they have lived as an example for us. Be with us, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit speak and convict us. We pray and ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Three things I want you to see this morning. The first two are, are just going to kind of set up the big idea of the last point. The first thing that you need to see is that persecution pleased the people. So persecution pleased those that were looking on. Particularly in verse 3, it says, When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so we're reminded here that it's persecution is being pleasing to the eyes and the ears of those people that were currently there. So I want you to also take your mind back to Acts chapter 11. If you'll just let your eyes follow up just a little bit to that last sentence of Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. In Antioch, we are told, the disciples were first called Christians. If you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of those inside the church of Jesus Christ being given this name Christian. And what I told you was, was that the, the name Christian, unlike today, is a derogatory term. It was, it was meant to, to mock those believers in that day. They believed the world that Jesus Christ had lived, that he had died, and he was no more. And so they, they associated these followers with that Christ, that Christ who in their mind had wasted his life. And so they mocked believers by calling them Christians. They mocked them by calling them believers. And now we're moving from the mockery of Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 to literally Acts chapter 12 and an experience, a testimony of murder. 
But I want you to know, as I have already said, the mockery in Acts chapter 11 and the murder in Acts chapter 12 will not prevent the gospel of Jesus Christ moving forward. No matter what pleased the people, it will not stop the church. We simply need to go back to the account of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. You remember that? Stephen was preaching the gospel. He was a man that was full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, and he was proclaiming the truth of what Jesus Christ had done. And, and we're told that Saul, standing over to the side, approved of Stephen's murder. Stephen was stoned to death because he believed in Jesus Christ. And then later on, we are told that as a result of the persecution of Stephen, that the gospel then began to move forward even unto Antioch. You see, Antioch in Acts chapter 11 heard the gospel because it was propelled there by the murder of Stephen. Again, it's a picture for us that no matter what comes our way as believers, it does not stop the work of the gospel. When I was reading and preparing this week, I came across a story that I thought was fascinating. Understand, this account is not inside of Scripture, but it's, a, it's Christian tradition to be understood to have happened. Christian tradition tells us, or historical tradition tells us, that when, when, whenever James was put into prison, he was put also with guards over him. But while James was in prison, he witnessed to those prisoners that were over him. And Christian tradition tells us that one of those soldiers came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And at the day that James was beheaded, he was not beheaded alone. But instead, that, so, that soldier who professed Christ was also executed along with James. You see, another historical picture that proves to us that no matter what the world approves of, no matter what persecution comes our way, it will not prevent the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even at James's death, another man stepped into paradise with the Savior, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful historical account of, of uh, even though persecution pleases people and persecution may please the masses, it does not prevent the gospel of Jesus moving forward. You see, at this point in our lives as Americans, today is July the 5th, we celebrate our independence this weekend. As a result of being Americans, we don't experience this type of persecution. Praise the Lord. But even if there were to come in our minds, even if there is the potential of persecution from some governmental agency, or maybe in our hearts as conservative followers of Jesus, if, uh, if we see persecution as maybe a, a liberal slide or a, a court decision that happens in our country, None of those things, none of those things will ever prevent the gospel of Jesus moving forward. If the government were to declare today that Christians cannot worship, it will not stop the work of Jesus Christ. James's beheading, as fearful as that may have made those followers of Christ, it only propelled the gospel forward. And as we see here, no matter what the masses approved of, it did not stop the gospel. The next thing I want you to see is that the religious people or the religion of this day propagated the problem. Look at verse 3. 
when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison as if it were not enough pressure for this young church, this new church, for the, the world to be against them, to mock them by calling them little Christ or Christians. Not only did the world desire to keep this church from flourishing and moving forward, but it seems that the religious people of the day, the religious people, they were in agreement with the world in silencing the church. Now, we need to make note of here of what this passage of Scripture says, that the arrest of Peter was done during the Passover. The arrest of Peter was, was done during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And since he was arrested during Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then the Jewish tradition mandated that he could not be executed until the Passover was over. So the Jews, I'm sure, told Herod, he told him that he could not execute Peter until after the Passover. Be sure you hear what I'm saying this morning. In order to kill Peter, the religious of the society insisted that their religious feast be completed first. You see, at some point, the obedience to the rituals of the feast of the Passover had lost the adherence to the words of the one who had instituted and protected them in the Passover in the first place. You remember the Passover. The Egyptians were getting ready. The Egyptians had the Jews in slavery, and the Jews were preparing themselves to, to leave and to be rescued from their imprisonment. And there was plagues that came over all of the people of Egypt. And there was this plague that they could be protected from if they simply would take blood from a lamb and put it over their doorpost. You remember this. Blood was placed over the doorpost and the angel of death would bypass that household. And so the Lord, the Lord did pass over those houses who were covered in the blood of the lamb. This was a celebration time of an act that God did in the life of those followers. But this celebration of this ritualistic event became more important to the religious than their obedience to God himself. You see, the observation of the feast in their mind was more vital to their faith than the obedience to the command that was given by God in his Ten Commandments to you shall not murder. Surely you see the depth of the hypocrisy in these religious people. See, this is the difference between religious people and disciples, followers of our Lord. This is the difference between religious and people who desire to go after God's own heart. Religious concern themselves with traditions and the human efforts of man, while disciples concern themselves with the Lord, obedience to Him, living within His standards, and the rest that we find in His grace and in His grace alone. These religious leaders murder Him in contradiction to God's law, behead Him, 
But wait until after our ritual is over. Wait until after the Passover. At that time, it will be good to disobey one of our God's ten commandments. This was the heart of the religious people. More concerned about the traditions and human efforts than they were the Lord himself in obedience to him. It should not surprise us to find this from the religious people of the day of the New Testament. Jesus spoke. Every time he would give a truth, it would be countered by a Jewish Pharisee. And as Jew, Jesus is encountering these Jewish religious people, he says, Matthew chapter 23, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. But listen to what Jesus says about these religious. But do not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. You see, what happened is, is their religion had led them further away from the desires of the Father. Their religion had moved them far away from the heart of God. And here again, we see these who supposedly fear the Yahweh that we celebrate. Instead of being helpful, they are being harmful to the kingdom of God. They are practicing evil towards the very God that they claim that they serve. Listen, we must be careful as New Testament followers of Jesus. I want to make no mistake about it. We are a religious people. Sometimes that word gets used and it gets misused, and some people like to say that we are not religious, but in fact we are a religious people. We have placed our hope inside the work of Jesus Christ. We are religious in the fact that we come together, gathered with one another to sing and worship our Lord. We are a religious people who have a blessed relationship with their Lord. Praise God that we are religious with a relationship with our God. But we cannot and we should not ever allow our religious activities to do harm to the relationship or the relationships of others with the Lord that they serve. Certainly we would say we would never, we would never do this to the point of murder as was the case here, but we have to constantly ask ourselves, does our religious testimony and practices, do they lead people closer to Jesus? Or do they push people away as does the religious in Acts chapter 12? No matter the persecution or why it came, the persecution was propagated by the religious, the, the persecution was approved by the people. I want you to see this last and final point this morning that is so important for us today. Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's keep reading. When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, centuries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. We need to see in these short five verses that we have, verse 5, 
While it might seem as if it is a sad account, and certainly our heart breaks that James was executed in such a terrible fashion. That he was murdered by Herod Agrippa I, and Peter was arrested by this evil Herod. But it seems at the end we ought to find ourselves encouraged. Because the response to the arrest of Peter, it is an example to us. The response to the difficulties, the response to the troubles, it's an example to us. It is earnest prayer. I think it needs to be said here, just to make sure we're clear, that the church earnestly prayed for Peter's rescue in verse 5. But there's no reason for us to believe that they had not also earnestly prayed for the rescue of James. Certainly the church didn't just now begin to pray. We know from Acts chapter 4 that gathered community prayer was a part of what a normal church looked like. So certainly the church had been praying for James and now they were praying for Peter. We just have to recognize that inside of God's greater sovereignty than our minds and his providence, he allowed it for James to be martyred for the sake of the kingdom. And Peter, we see, is rescued because of the effectual prayer of God's people. We need to recognize for ourselves, no matter what we thought we might have done in these circumstances, I think that I might have gone to get my sword. We might have gathered a militia together to go and rescue Peter so that the same thing doesn't happen to Peter that has happened to James. We might gather up our friends and try to find some consultants on best war practices so that we can go and find how we can rescue Peter. But I want you to see the response of the New Testament church wasn't war practices. The response of the New Testament church was not to pick up their sword. The response of the New Testament church was earnest prayer. The response of the New Testament church was praying. But I don't want you to see this response to pray as a negative response to the world's taking up of a sword. Or I don't want you to see as, as the response to pray as an illegitimate response to the world's taking up of the sword. Instead, we have to see that the church taking up earnest prayer is a dependence. It's a dependence on a power that is greater than any power of any man who might ever take up a sword. Taking up prayer in the midst of our troubles is an act of dependence upon our God. I love what John Piper says, that our prayer to God in times like this are like wartime walkie-talkies, he says. It's our opportunity to conversate with the one who has the power to solve all of our problems. When we take up prayer as our only tool for troubles in which we are in, we are showing the world and we are declaring to God that he is significantly greater in power than any sword of any man in any world at any time. You see, the church, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, they're declaring to us that the solution to their troubles, even the troubles of arrest and beheading, the solution to their troubles is not a human man-made solution. It is a declaration to the God of all power to reach down and rescue Peter. This response is mind-boggling for us. 
in our mindset, we want to solve our troubles. We want to solve our problems. We want a rescue, a human rescue from our difficulty. But in truth, we let the Lord know that we trust him above all things when we declare before him in earnest prayer that we need his help. It's hard for us to think about. But this dependence seems to be what was common for men and women of faith in the book of Acts. But what about us as a church, but as individuals, as Americans, as the follower of Jesus, when troubles arrive, when persecution, God forbid, comes, what will be our first defense? What is our first defense to our problems? Is it to hire a political lobbyist? Is our first response anxious waiting until another November? Well, what is our response to troubles and difficulties that come in our personal lives? Is it protest? Is it declarations? You see, from the New Testament church, we see the, the proper response for our troubles, our difficulties, our broken hearts, our relationships that need to be mended, our sadness, our discouragement. No matter where we find ourselves, our response should be prayer. Earnest prayer, because prayer provided provision to the New Testament church. Prayer must be the first weapon if we sincerely believe that God is greater than the human sword. But see, we have to decide whether or not we truly believe God is greater than the human sword. This is a difficult question for us. Our first step in the midst of troubles declare to God what we believe. Is the human sword more powerful than earnest, effectual prayer? The New Testament church would say absolutely not. So step one is to go before the Lord and ask him to intervene in the midst of your persecution or in the midst of your trouble and distress. And it brings us, I think, to a point where we have to respond as a result of seeing this persecution and this response of the early church. We have to respond just simply by asking ourselves, do we go to the Lord first? And what does that say about our faith if we do or if we do not? And it should call us, I think, to a deeper prayer, a more consistent prayer, prayer life as followers of Jesus Christ. We ought to pray that, that God change our nation first. We ought to pray that God change our church. We ought to pray that God change our hearts. We ought to pray first before all other things that God be effectual in his results to our faith. The persecuted church exists all around the world. We ought to pray that they be given relief. We ought to pray that in all that we do that God receives glory. We ought to be in earnest prayer as the first weapon against the difficulties in our lives. This week, we have an opportunity to commit to earnest prayer. Will you just this week declare that I'm going to be in earnest prayer? My first thought to all of my troubles, all of my problems is going to be to 
to intercede before God. God, we ask this morning that you remind us, Lord, of the significance of earnest prayer from your people. God, I'm grateful that the disciples, they ask you, Lord, teach us to pray. Because, God, they understood the great significance of standing before the throne of God. Lord, oftentimes I confess my first step is a human solution. My first step often, God, is to pick up my sword. But God, the New Testament church does not emulate that to us. The New Testament church tells us that the first step is earnest prayer. So God, this week, Lord, as troubles come our way, as I'm sure they will, as difficulties are put before us, as I'm certain that they will be, God, as we encounter those troubles we've had for a while, Lord, as we, as we try to mend broken relationships in our families, as, as, Lord, we face addiction, Lord, as we face the problems of finances, Lord, as we face the difficulties that face us, Lord, just in this time of this pandemic, God, as we face health concerns for those of us, but God, also for those people that we love. God, let us respond to those things, not by taking up of a sword, but by earnest and effectual prayer. This is, this is the faith that you desire from us. God, thank you for this example and convict us, God, earnestly pray before you when we're faced with difficulties and troubles. We love you, Lord. Be with us now as we sing and we worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.